Section 8 of Biography of Muhammad Jiba Kwakwa by Samuel Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Part 2. It's horrors. Ha! Huh? Who can describe? None can so truly depict its horrors as the poor, unfortunate, miserable wretch that has been confined within its portals. Oh, friends of humanity, pity the poor African who has been trepanned and sold away from friends and home, and consigned to the hold of a slave-ship, to await even more horrors and miseries in a distant land, amongst the religious and benevolent, yes, even in their very midst, but to the ship. We were thrust into the hold of the vessel in a state of nudity, the males being crammed on one side and the females on the other. The hold was so low that we could not stand up, but were obliged to crouch upon the floor or sit down. Day and night were the same to us, sleep being denied us from the confined position of our bodies, and we became desperate through suffering and fatigue. Oh, the loathsomeness and filth of that horrible place will never be effaced from my memory. Nay, as long as memory holds her seat in this distracted brain, will I remember that. My heart, even at this day, sickens at the thought of it. Let those humane individuals who are in favor of slavery only allow themselves to take the slave's position in the noisome hold of a slave ship. Just for one trip from Africa to America, and without going into the horrors of slavery further than this, if they do not come out thorough-going abolitionists, then I have no more to say in favor of abolition." but I think their views and feelings regarding slavery will be changed in some degree, however. If not, let them continue in the course of slavery, and work out their term in a cotton or rice field, or other plantation, and then, if they do not say hold, enough, I think they must be of iron frames, possessing neither hearts nor souls. I imagine there can be but one place more horrible in all creation than the hold of a slave ship, and that place is where slaveholders and their myrmidons are the most likely to find themselves some day, when, alas, it will be too late, too late, alas. The only food we had during the voyage was corn soaked and boiled. I cannot tell how long we were thus confined, but it seemed a very long while. We suffered very much for want of water, but was denied all we needed. A pint a day was all that was allowed, and no more, and a great many slaves died upon the passage. There was one poor fellow, became so very desperate for want of water, that he attempted to snatch a knife from the white man who brought in the water, when he was taken up on deck, and I never knew what became of him. I supposed he was thrown overboard. When any one of us became refractory, his flesh was cut with a knife, and pepper or vinegar was rubbed in to make him peaceable. I suffered, and so did the rest of us, very much from sea-sickness at first, but that did not cause our brutal owners any trouble. Our sufferings were our own. We had no one to share our troubles, none to care for us, or even to speak a word of comfort to us. Some were thrown overboard before breath was out of their bodies, when it was thought any would not live, they were got rid of in that way. Only twice during the voyage we were allowed to go on deck to wash ourselves, once whilst at sea, 
and again just before going into port. We arrived at Pernambuco, South America, early in the morning, and the vessel played about during the day without coming to anchor. All that day we neither ate or drank anything, and we were given to understand that we were to remain perfectly silent, and not make any outcry, otherwise our lives were in danger. But when night threw her sable mantle on the earth and sea, the anchor dropped, and we were permitted to go on deck to be viewed and handled by our future masters who had come aboard from the city. We landed a few miles from the city, at a farmer's house, which was used as a kind of slave market. The farmer had a great many slaves, and I had not been there very long before I saw him use the lash pretty freely on a boy, which made a deep impression on my mind, as of course I imagined that would be my fate ere long, and oh, too soon, alas, were my fears realized. When I reached the shore, I felt thankful to Providence that I was once more permitted to breathe pure air, the thought of which almost absorbed every other. I cared but little then that I was a slave, having escaped the ship was all I thought about. Some of the slaves on board could talk Portuguese. They had been living on the coast with Portuguese families, and they used to interpret to us. They were not placed in the hold with the rest of us, but come down occasionally to tell us something or other. These slaves never knew they were to be sent away until they were placed on board the ship. I remained in this slave market but a day or two, before I was again sold to a slave dealer in the city, who again sold me to a man in the country, who was a baker, and resided not a great distance from Pernambuco. When a slaver comes in, the news spreads like wildfire, and down come all those that are interested in the arrival of the vessel with its cargo of living merchandise, who select from the stock those most suited to their different purposes, and purchase the slaves precisely in the same way that oxen or horses would be purchased in a market. But if there are not the kind of slaves in the one cargo, suited to the wants and wishes of the slave buyers, an order is given to the captain for the particular sorts required, which are furnished to order the next time the ship comes into port. Great numbers make quite a business of this buying and selling human flesh, and do nothing else for a living, depending entirely upon this kind of traffic. I had contrived, whilst on my passage in the slave ship, to gather up a little knowledge of the Portuguese language, from the men before spoken of, and as my master was a Portuguese, I could comprehend what he wanted very well, and gave him to understand that I would do all he needed as well as I was able, upon which he appeared quite satisfied. His family consisted of himself, wife, two children, and a woman who was related to them. He had four other slaves as well as myself. He was a Roman Catholic, and had family worship regularly twice a day, which was something after the following. He had a large clock standing in the entry of the house, in which were some images made of clay, which were used in worship. We all had to kneel before them, the family in front and the slaves behind. We were taught to chant some words which we did not know the meaning of. We also had to make the sign of the cross several times. Whilst worshipping, my master held a whip in his hand, and those who showed signs of inattention or drowsiness were immediately brought to consciousness by a smart application of the whip. This mostly fell to the lot of the female slave, 
who would often fall asleep in spite of the images, crossings, and other like pieces of amusement. I was soon placed at hard labor, such as none but slaves and horses are put to. At the time of this man's purchasing me, he was building a house, and had to fetch building stone from across the river, a considerable distance, and I was compelled to carry them that were so heavy it took three men to raise them upon my head, which burden I was obliged to bear for a quarter of a mile at least down to where the boat lay. Sometimes the stone would press so hard upon my head that I was obliged to throw it down upon the ground, and then my master would be very angry indeed, and would say the Kasohi, dog, had thrown down the stone, and I thought in my heart that he was the worst dog, but it was only a thought, as I dared not give utterance in words. I soon improved in my knowledge of the Portuguese language whilst here, and was able very shortly to count a hundred. I was then sent out to sell bread for my master, first going round through the town and then out into the country, and in the evening, after coming home again, sold in the market till nine at night. Being pretty honest and persevering, I generally sold out, but sometimes was not quite successful, and then the lash was my portion. My companions in slavery were not quite so steady as I was, being much given to drink, so that they were not so profitable to my master. I took advantage of this, to raise myself in his opinion, by being very attentive and obedient. But it was all the same, do what I would. I found I had a tyrant to serve. Nothing seemed to satisfy him, so I took to drinking likewise. Then we were all of a sort, bad master, bad slaves. Things went on worse and worse, and I was very anxious to change masters, so I tried running away, but was soon caught, tied, and carried back. I next tried what it would do for me by being unfaithful and indolent, so one day, when I was sent out to sell bread as usual, I only sold a small quantity, and the money I took and spent for whiskey, which I drank pretty freely, and went home well drunk, when my master went to count the days taken in my basket, and discovering the state of things, I was beaten very severely. I told him he must not whip me any more, and got quite angry, for the thought came into my head that I would kill him, and afterwards destroy myself. I at last made up my mind to drown myself. I would rather die than live to be a slave. I then ran down to the river, and threw myself in, but being seen by some persons who were in a boat, I was rescued from drowning. The tide was low at the time, or their efforts would most likely have been unavailing, and notwithstanding my predetermination, I thanked God that my life had been preserved, and that so wicked a deed had not been consummated. It led me seriously to reflect that God moves in a mysterious way, and that all his acts are acts of kindness and mercy. I was then but a poor heathen, almost as ignorant as a Hottentot, and had not learned the true God, nor any of his divine commandments. Yet, ignorant and slave as I was, slavery I loathed, principally, as I suppose, because I was its victim. After this sad attempt upon my life, I was taken to my master's house, who tied my hands behind me, and placed my feet together, and whipped me most unmercifully, and beat me about the head and face with a heavy stick, and shook me by the neck, and struck my head against the doorposts, which cut and bruised me about the temples, the scars from which savage treatment are visible at this time, and will remain so as long as I live. After all this cruelty, he took me to the city, and sold me to a dealer, where he had taken me once before, 
but his friends advised him then not to part with me, as they considered it more to his advantage to keep me as I was a profitable slave. I have not related a tithe of the cruel suffering which I endured whilst in the service of this wretch in human form. The limits of the present work will not allow more than a hasty glance at the different scenes which took place in my brief career. I could tell more than would be pleasant for ears polite, and could not possibly do any good. I could relate occurrences which would freeze thy young blood, harrow up thy soul, and make each particular hair to stand on end like quills upon the fretful porcupine. And yet, it would be but a repetition of the thousand and one oft-told tales of the horrors of the cruel system of slavery. The man to whom I was again sold was very cruel indeed. He bought two females at the time he bought me. One of them was a very beautiful girl, and he treated her with shocking barbarity. After a few weeks he shipped me off to Rio de Janeiro, where I remained two weeks previous to being again sold. There was a colored man there who wanted to buy me, but for some reason or other he did not complete the purchase. I merely mention this fact to illustrate that slaveholding is generated in power, and any one having the means of buying his fellow-creature with the paltry dross can become a slave-owner, no matter his color, his creed or country, and that the colored man would as soon enslave his fellow-men as the white man, had he the power. I was at length sold to a captain of a vessel, who was what may be termed a hard case. He invited me to go and see his senora, wife. I made my best bow to her, and was soon installed into my new office, that of scouring the breastwork about the ship, cleaning the knives and forks, and doing other little matters necessary to be done about the cabin. I did not at first like my situation, but as I got acquainted with the crew and the rest of the slaves, I got along pretty well. In a short time I was promoted to the office of under-steward. The steward provided for the table, and I carried the provisions to the cook and waited at table. Being pretty smart, they gave me plenty to do. A short time after, the captain and steward disagreed, and he gave up his stewardship when the keys of his office were entrusted to me. I did all in my power to please my master, the captain, and he in return placed confidence in me. The captain's lady was anything but a good woman. She had a most wretched temper. The captain had carried her off from St. Catherine's, just as she was on the point of getting married, and I believe was never married to her. She often got me into disgrace with my master, and then a whipping was sure to follow. She would at one time do all she could to get me a flogging, and at other times she would interfere and prevent it, just as she was in the humor. She was a strange compound of humanity and brutality. She always went to sea with the captain. Our first voyage was to Rio Grande. The voyage itself was pleasant enough, had I not suffered with seasickness. The harbor at Rio Grande is rather shallow, and on entering we struck the ground, as it happened at low water, and we had great difficulty in getting her to float again. We finally succeeded and exchanged our cargo for dried meat. We then went to Rio de Janeiro and soon succeeded in disposing of the cargo. We then steered for St. Catharines to obtain farinha, a kind of breadstuff used mostly by the slaves. From thence we turned again to Rio Grande and exchanged our cargo for whale oil and put out again to sea and stood for Rio de Janeiro. 
the vessel being very heavily laden, we had a very bad time of it. We all expected that we should be lost, but by lightening the ship of part of her cargo, which we did by throwing overboard a quantity, the ship and all hands were once more saved from the devouring jaws of the destructive element. Headwinds were prevalent, and although within sight of port for several days, we could not make the harbor do all we could. Whilst in the doubtful position of whether we should be lost or not, it occurred to me that death would be but a release from my slavery, and on that account rather welcome than otherwise. Indeed, I hardly dared to care either way. I was but a slave, and I felt myself to be one without hope or prospects of freedom, without friends or liberty. I had no hopes in this world, and knew nothing of the next. All was gloom, all was fear. The present and the future were as one, no dividing mark. All toil, toil, cruelty, cruelty, no end but death to all my woes. I was not a Christian then, I knew not of a Saviour's love. I knew nothing of his saving grace, of his love for poor lost sinners, of his mission of peace and goodwill to all men. Nor had I heard of that good land so beautifully spoken of by the poet, a land of pure delight where saints immortal dwell, and to which land of promise the Christian is daily shortening the journey. No, these tidings of great joy had not then been imparted to my gloomy mind, and all was black despair. But when I heard the Saviour's words, Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, I sought and found him, which came as a balm to my wounds, as consolation to my afflicted soul. When, think of all this, and consider the past, I am content to struggle on in this world to fulfill my mission here, and to do the work that is given me to do. Ho, oh, Christianity, thou soother of men's sufferings, thou guide to the blind, and strength to the weak. Go thou on thy mission, speak the peaceful tidings of salvation all around, and make glad the heart of men. Then shall the wilderness be glad and blossom as the rose. Then will slavery with all its horrors ultimately come to an end, for none possessing thy power and under thy influence can perpetuate a calling so utterly at variance with and repugnant to all thy doctrines. After great labor and toil, we were landed in perfect safety. During this voyage, I endured more corporeal punishment than ever I did my life. The mate, a perfect brute of a fellow, ordered me one day to wash down the vessel, and after I had finished, he pointed to a place where he said was a spot, and with an oath ordered me to scrub it over again, and I did so, but not being in the best of humor, he required it to be done a third time, and so on again. When finding it was only out of caprice, and there being no spot to clean, I in the end refused to scrub any more. When he took a broomstick to me, and having a scrubbing brush in my hand, I lifted it to him. The master saw all that was going on, and was very angry at me for attempting to strike the mate. He ordered one of the hands to cut a piece of rope for him, he told me I was to be whipped, and I answered, very well, but kept on with my work with an eye continually turned towards him, watching his movements. When I had set the breakfast ready, he came behind me before I could get out of his way, and struck me with the rope over my shoulders, and being rather long, the end of it swung down and struck my stomach very violently, 
which caused me some pain and sickness. The force with which the blow was struck completely knocked me down, and afterwards he beat me whilst on deck in a most brutal manner. My mistress interfered at this time, and saved me from further violence. We remained at Rio de Janeiro nearly a month. Whilst there, an incident occurred, which I will relate in illustration of the slave system. One day it was necessary for me to go ashore with my master as one of the oarsmen, and whilst there I drank pretty freely of wine, and seeing my master about returning to the boat, I made for where it lay, and being rather confused with drink, as well as flurried at seeing my master, I fell into the water. But it being only shallow, I suffered nothing further than a good ducking for my drunkness. I was easily got out. Whilst rowing my master, my head swam very much from the effects of the liquor I had drank, and consequently did not pull very steadily. When my master, seeing the plight I was in, asked me what was the matter. I said, Nothing, sir. He said again, Have you been drinking? I answered, No, sir. So that by being ill-used I learned to drink, and from that I learned to tell lies, and no doubt should have gone on step by step from bad to worse, until nothing would have been wicked enough for me to have done, and all this through the horrible system of slavery. But I am happy to say that through the grace of God I was led to abandon my evil ways. When the cargo was landed, an English merchant having a quantity of coffee for shipment in New York, my master was engaged for the purpose, and it was arranged, after some time, that I should accompany him, together with several others, to serve on shipboard. We all had learned that at New York there was no slavery, that it was a free country, and that if we once got there we had nothing to dread from our cruel slave masters, and that we were all most anxious to get there. Previous to the time of the ship's sailing, we were informed that we were going to a land of freedom. I said then, you will never see me any more after I once get there. I was overjoyed at the idea of going to a free country, and a ray of hope dawned upon me, that the day was not far distant when I should be a free man. Indeed, I felt myself already free. How beautifully the sun shone on that eventful morning, the morning of our departure for that land of freedom we had heard so much about. The winds, too, were favorable, and soon the canvas spread before the exhilarating breeze, and our ship stood for that happy land. The duties of office on that voyage appeared light to me indeed, in anticipation of seeing the goodly land, and nothing at all appeared a trouble to me. I obeyed all orders, cheerfully and with alacrity. That was the happiest time in my life. Even now my heart thrills with joyous delight when I think of that voyage, and believe that the God of all mercies ordered all for my good. How thankful was I! The winds held favorable for a speedy passage several days together, after which we experienced very rough, tempestuous weather, which somewhat retarded our progress, and put us in some danger of being sent to that bourne from whence no traveller returns, as fears were entertained for our safety. One night, during the voyage, it blew a perfect hurricane the whole night, and just previous to daybreak the lamps in the binnacle went out with the heavy rolling of the ship. I was ordered to light it, but on account of the high wind, after several attempts, I entirely failed. Aha, says the captain, my boy, you can't light the binnacle, can't you? The man at the helm said it was light enough. 
he could do without it. He could see the compass well enough. But as orders were given, whether the light was wanted or not, they must be obeyed. So three other hands were called, and a blanket was placed around the minacle to keep off the wind, when they succeeded at length in lighting it. But I, not understanding how to do it, could not light it. I had tried over and over again. After this the captain got out of his berth, dressed himself, and ordered me to light his lamp. When I went to him, he took a large stick for the purpose of striking me, and aiming a blow at my head, I raised my arm to prevent my head being struck. He told me to keep my hand down. I did so, but when the blow was falling, I again raised my hand, and succeeded in saving my skull from being cracked. He did not want to strike my hand, as that would prevent me from doing my work. But whether my head was broke or not, I should have had to do my usual work. He then told me to turn round so that he might be able to strike my back. I told him to strike me all that he wanted. He was very angry, and struck me at random over my head and body, just where it might happen. I defied him to do his worst, to do what he could, and wreck his vengeance fully upon a miserable being like myself. He then called to three of the hands, and ordered them to tie me to the cannon. I had thoughts of springing into the water, but was not quite satisfied to go alone. If I could have had the pleasure of taking him along with me, I should have willingly done so. The three men fastened hold upon me and placed me upon the cannon, face downwards. They were then ordered to whip me, which they did, pretty smartly. He then required me to take submission and beg for mercy, but that I would not do. I told him to kill me if he pleased, but for mercy at his hands I would not cry. I also told him that when they untied me from the cannon he must take care of himself that day, as when I looked upon my lacerated bleeding body I reflected that though it was bruised and torn my heart was not subdued. As soon as I was loosened I made towards the captain, who gave orders to the men to place me securely in the bow of the vessel, and not allow me to go near him again. I was so sore from my bruises and cuts that I could do nothing for several days. The captain, during my sickness, would send me good victuals from his own table, no doubt to conciliate me after the cruel wrongs he had inflicted on me, but that was in vain. I was not in any great hurry to get to work again, as he frequently, previous to this, caused me to be flogged for not doing what it would have taken any three men to have done, so that I now felt inclined that he should do without any further services altogether. Slavery is bad. Slavery is wrong. This captain did a great many cruel things, which would be horrible to relate. He treated the female slaves with very great cruelty and barbarity. He had it all his own way. There were none to take their part. He was for the time monarch of all his surveyed, king of the floating house. None dared to gainsay his power or to control his will. But the day is coming when his power will be vested in another, and of his stewardship he must render an account. Alas, what account can he render of the crimes committed upon the writhing bodies of the poor pitiless wretches he had under his charge, when his kingship shall cease and the great account is called for? How shall he answer, and what will be his doom? That will only be known when the great book is opened. May God pardon him in his infinite mercy for the tortures inflicted upon his fellow creatures, although of a different complexion. The first words of English that my two companions and myself ever learned 
was F-R-E-E. -E. We were taught it by an Englishman on board. And oh, how many times did I repeat it, over and over again? The same man told me a great deal about New York City. He could speak Portuguese. He told me how the colored people in New York were all free, and it made me feel very happy, and I longed for the day to come when I should be there. The day at length came, but it was not an easy matter for two boys and a girl who could only speak one word of English to make their escape, having, as we supposed, no friends to aid us. But God was our friend, as it proved in the end, and raised up for us many friends in a strange land. The pilot who came aboard of our vessel treated us very kindly. He appeared different to any person I had ever seen before, and we took courage from that little circumstance. The next day, a great many colored persons came aboard the vessel, who inquired whether we were free. The captain had previously told us not to say that we were slaves, but we heeded not his wish, and he, seeing so many persons coming aboard, began to entertain fears that his property would take in their heads to lift their heels and run away, so he very prudently informed us that New York was no place for us to go about in, that it was a very bad place, and as sure as the people caught us they would kill us. But when we were alone we concluded that we would take the first opportunity and the chance how we would fare in a free country. One day, when I had helped myself rather freely to wine, I was imprudent enough to say, I would not stay aboard any longer, that I would be free. The captain, hearing it, called me down below, and he and three others endeavored to confine me, but could not do so. But they ultimately succeeded in confining me in a room in the bow of the vessel. I was there in confinement several days. The man who brought my food would knock at the door, and if I told him to come in he would do so, otherwise he would pass along and I got no food. I told him on one occasion that I would not remain confined there another day with my life, that out I would get, and there being some pieces of iron in the room, towards night I took hold of one of them. It was a bar, about two feet long. With that I broke open the door and walked out. The men were all busy at work, and the captain's wife was standing on the deck when I ascended from my prison. I heard them asking one another who had let me out, but no one could tell. I bowed to the captain's wife and passed on to the side of the ship. There was a plank from the ship to the shore. I walked across it and ran as if for my life, of course not knowing whither I was going. I was observed during my flight by a watchman, who was rather lame, and he undertook to stop me, but I shook him off and passed on until I got to a store, at the door of which I halted a moment to take breath. They inquired of me what was the matter but I could not tell them, as I knew nothing of English but the word free. Soon after, the lame watchman and another came up to me. One of them drew a bright star from his pocket and shewed it to me, but I could make nothing of it. I was then taken to the watch-house and locked up all night, when the captain called next morning, paid expenses, and took me back again to the ship along with him. The officers told me I should be a free man if I chose but I did not know how to act. So after a little persuasion, the captain induced me to go back with him, as I need not be afraid. This was on a Saturday, and on the following Monday afternoon, three carriages drove up and stopped near the vessel. Some gentlemen came aboard from them, and walked about the deck, talking to the captain, telling him that all on board were free, 
and requesting him to hoist the flag. He blushed a good deal and said he would not do so. He put himself in a great rage and stormed somewhat considerably. We were afterwards taken in their carriages, accompanied by the captain, to a very handsome building, with a splendid portico in front, the entrance to which was ascended by a flight of marble steps, and was surrounded by a neat iron railing, having gates at different points, the enclosure being ornamented with trees and shrubs of various kinds. It appeared to me a most beautiful place, as I had never seen anything like it before. I afterwards learned that this building was the City Hall of New York. When we arrived in the large room of the building, it was crowded to excess by all kinds of people, and great numbers stood about the doors and steps, and all about the courtyard, some in conversation, others merely idling away the time walking to and fro. The Brazilian consul was there, and when we were called upon, I was asked if we wished to remain there or go back to Brazil. I answered for my companion and myself that we did not wish to return, but the female slave who was with us said she would return. I have no doubt she would have preferred staying behind, but seeing the captain there, she was intimidated and afraid to speak her mind, and so also was the man, but I spoke boldly out that I would rather die than return into slavery. After a great many questions had been asked us and answered, we were taken to a prison, as I supposed it was, and there locked up. A few days afterwards we were taken again to the city hall and asked many more questions. We were then taken back to our old quarters, the prison house, I suppose preparatory to being shipped off again to Brazil. But of that I am not sure, as I could not understand all the ceremonies of locking us up and unlocking us, taking us to the courthouse to ask questions and exhibit us before the audience there assembled. All this was new to me. I, therefore, could not fully understand the meaning of all this, but I feared greatly that we were about to be returned to slavery. I trembled at the thought. Whilst we were again locked up, some friends who had interested themselves very much in our behalf contrived a means by which the prison doors were open whilst the keeper slept, and we found no difficulty in passing him and gaining once more the pure air of heaven, and by the assistance of those dear friends whom I shall never forget, I was enabled to reach the city of Boston in Massachusetts, and remained there under their protection about four weeks, when it was arranged that I should either be sent to England or Haiti, and I was consulted on the subject to know which I would prefer, and after considering for some time, I thought Haiti would be more like the climate of my own country, and would agree better with my health and feelings. I did not know exactly what sort of a place England was, or perhaps might have preferred to have gone there, more particularly as I have since learned that nearly all the English are friends to the colored man and his race, and that they have done so much for my people in the way of their welfare and advancement, and continue to this day to agitate anti-slavery and every other good cause. As it was, I determined to go to Haiti. Accordingly, a free passage was procured for us, and considerable provisions were collected for my use during the voyage. There was on board a colored man of the name of Jones, who could speak Spanish very well. During the voyage he took great pains to instruct me, and to give me correct ideas of things which I had formed the most absurd notion of. For instance, a person in walking in the sun will see his shadow. This shadow I had been led to believe was the soul of men that I had heard much of, and that when the body died the soul went to heaven, that is, the shadow, and the body went to earth. 
His explanation of this shadow puzzled me very much, but the solution of the mystery pleased me, and I began to feel proud of my learning. I worked occasionally for the captain on our passage to Haiti. When I arrived at Haiti, I felt myself free, as indeed I was. No slavery exists there, yet all are people of color who dwell there. I did not know a word of their language, which was Creole, neither did I know where to go or what to do. We, however, went to the emperor's house first. He was very kind to us. One of the emperor's generals, Depe by name, and a mulatto gave me plenty to eat and drink, and at night allowed me to lay down with his horses in the stables, and the mosquitoes tormented me very much. They teased me awfully. He often gave me whiskey and brandy to drink, and was every way very kind to me. These favors were, though only trifling in themselves under other circumstances, to me great indeed, considering what my position was. I went about from house to house, a stranger in a strange land, and without being able to speak one word of the language of the people, and what was worse than all, not a copper in my possession, to buy even a loaf, to satisfy the cravings of my stomach. At length, a colored man from America got me to work for him as cook about his house, but he was a very bad man, and I did not stay with him very long. At night he took me upstairs and pointed to the floor where I was to sleep, although there was a bed in one corner of the room. But as soon as his back was turned, I got into the bed and slept soundly till morning. When he discovered I had slept in the bed, he beat me and knocked me about very much, and ordered me not to do the like no more. But the next night I did the same thing, for which he shook me about and turned me out of doors. So I became again an outcast and wanderer. I slept in the streets for several nights and became sick, so that when I walked about I was thought to be drunk, as my head was dizzy from the weakness of my system. In this way I went from house to house, and the people could not understand but thought I was drunk. After this, when General de Pe had taken notice of me, as before stated, my fellow in misfortune went to the Baptist missionary, the Reverend Mr. Judd, and told him our circumstances stating that we were two slaves from Brazil, and asked him if he could not do something for us, when he agreed to take me into his service, upon which I entered with the most cheerful alacrity. I remained with him upwards of two years, and a better mannered Christian than Mr. Judd, in my opinion, cannot be found. He treated me with every kindness, color to him being no cause of ill-treatment. Neither shall I ever forget the kindness of his good lady, she behaved to me all the time of my servitude, even as a Christian should behave. I loved her for her goodness, although at times I did not behave even to them as they deserved. I must confess, I sometimes treated them rather badly. I had not much gratitude then. I would often get very drunk and be abusive to them, but they overlooked my bad behavior always, and when Mrs. Judd would try to coax me to go home and behave myself, I would fight her and tell her I would not. After my conversion to Christianity, I gave up drinking and all other kinds of vices. At the end of that time, a stir was made in Haiti to enroll the militia, and being opposed to the spirit of war, as well as was my master and mistress, it was agreed that I should leave Haiti on that account, and they provided for me a passage on board a vessel bound to New York, in order to educate me preparatory to going to my own people in Africa, to preach the gospel of glad tidings of great joy to the ignorant and benighted of my fellow countrymen, who are now believers in the false prophet Muhammad. 
a book published at Utica in the state of New York, and entitled Facts for Baptist Churches by Mr. A. T. Foss of New Hampshire and E. Matthews of Wisconsin, thus speaks of Muhammad. After enduring the yoke for two years in Brazil, he escaped and sought a refuge in this land, which boasts of its freedom and philanthropy, but that refuge he sought here in vain. Flying, therefore, from our shores, through a kind providence, he was conducted to the city of Porto Prince in Haiti, and to the Christian hospitalities of William L. Judd. Our missionary received him gladly, and while he provided him a home and temporal comforts, he failed not to instruct him in the religion of the gospel. The instruction was to him as life from the dead, and his heart felt its power. He saw and acknowledged its adaptedness to his case as a sinner. He bowed to its authority. He rejoiced in its truth, and became a disciple of its divine author. The baptismal scene, when Mahoma publicly put his trust in Christ, is thus described by Mr. Judd. It is taken from the Christian contributor. His experience before the church was very affecting. Several persons present, not professors of religion, wept on hearing it. He is endowed by nature with a soul so noble that he grasps the whole world at a stroke, in the movements of his benevolent feelings, and the expression of such noble feelings in a style so simple and broken as his is truly affecting. He now seems filled with the most ardent desire to labor for the salvation of souls, talks much of Africa, and prays ardently that her people may receive the gospel, dreams often of visiting Casqua, accompanied by a good white man, as he calls a missionary, and being kindly received by his mother. He had been asking for baptism a considerable time, when I felt that I could not refuse him any longer. We repaired to the seaside very early in the morning, accompanied by a mixed congregation. After singing and praying in French, I delivered a discourse of perhaps twenty minutes, mostly extemporaneous, upon les usages pratiques de l'ordonnance du baptême, the practical uses of baptism, founded on Romans 6, 1-4. After this, I prayed in English for the especial benefit of Mahama. In passing down the gentle descent to reach a sufficient depth of water, I asked him if he wished now to devote himself entirely to God and to the good of the world. He replied, Oh yes, Mr. Judd, I want to do all for God, all for good. In the water of the great deep, which in their eternal freedom rolling, bathe Africa as well as Haiti, I buried him with Christ in baptism, hoping that he may yet be born upon its surface as a messenger of mercy to the dark land of his birth. I will give a slight glance at the voyage from Port-au-Prince to New York, and relate the incidents connected with it as briefly as possible. We had a most miserable passage, headwinds nearly all the way. Indeed, they continued from our leaving Haiti until reaching a southern port in the United States of America, into which we were compelled to run on account of the weather. The wife of Mr. Judd accompanied me on my voyage, she being on a visit to the States where her parents resided. When the vessel put into port, a slave owner came aboard, and seeing me, asked if I was for sale, remarking I was a likely nigger, and would look well skinned, as my hide was a little too dark. We encountered at sea very heavy weather, the ship rocking and pitching most fearfully. We had prayers aboard, but we did not fear the raging of the sea, as our trust was in him, who resteth the sea and stilleth the tempest. My mistress was very fond of me, and said she did not feel at all uneasy as long as Mahama was near her. 
she had great confidence in me, not that I could have saved her in case of wreck, but I suppose she felt more at rest knowing me, and that I had been about her so long and served her faithfully. The weather, however, soon moderated, and we once more set sail again with a fair wind, and was soon on our way to the city of New York again, where we arrived on a Saturday. On the following day, one of the seamen who had professed great friendship for me during the voyage took it into his head to turn ugly with me. As he was about going ashore, I merely said to him, Give my respects to your wife, as he had been so kind to me. What I said was intended merely as a little civility, when, as I found afterwards, he had been drinking. He took it completely amiss, called me a nigger, and swore he would give me a thrashing. At night, when he returned again on board, he was very drunk and behaved with great violence, swearing that he would break my head with a stick, which he flourished about over my head. I had placed chairs round the table for supper as usual, when he remarked that he did not intend to sit down with a nigger. He afterwards got more calm and sat down and ate like a Christian, but this was not till I had let him see a little of my own ugliness and had threatened to beat him that he became quieted. When he saw was no longer to be played with, he gave in and became a good man, only because he was obliged to. I followed out the scripture injunction to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves, not at all intending to beat him, merely to quiet him. My wisdom I displayed in the first place, not needing to display any other spirit than an harmless one. In the second, I found my wisdom sufficient for the case at that time. We safely reached the shore at New York, and were soon on our way steaming it to Albany, at which place we took the cars to within a short distance of Mrs. Judd's mother's house, which was a little way from a village called Milford in the state of New York. We arrived at Milford early in the following morning, and I was sent out to the house whilst Mrs. Judd stood at the tavern to fetch a conveyance to take her on. When I reached her mother's house, I had a mind to impress them with the belief that I was a fugitive, but questions being put to me of a positive nature, I could not but give positive answers. I told her I was from Haiti, and she immediately conjectured who I was, as accounts were often sent to her from her daughter in papers printed there, and she asked me if I was Mahama. I said I was. She wanted to know how I got to America, who had brought me here. I at once told her, when orders were immediately given for horses, and I returned for my mistress, who was soon once more in the embraces of a kind, good mother. Mother and child had once again met, after seas had separated them so great a distance. I remained there about four weeks, then went to Meredith, in Delaware County, amongst the free missions, to see whether they would undertake the task of educating me, when they agreed at once to do so. A gentleman by the name of Dalton was exceedingly kind to me, and undertook my case with the friends of the missions. They then sent me on to McGrawville, at the time C. P. Grosvenor was the president of the college, who was very kind to me, and made much of me, treating me in every way as an equal and a gentleman. I remained nearly three years in the college, and during that time made very great progress in learning, before leaving the college. My teacher, Miss K. King, composed the following lines, which were spoken by me before the primary department of the college. Lines spoken by Mahama. You can't expect one of my race, with woolly hair and sable face, and scarce array of knowledge, to interest his friends at college. 
but I will do the best I can to prove I mean to be a man. Tis true, my limbs have fetters worn. Tis true, my back the scourge has borne. But tis not true that tyrant's power e'er made my heart within me cower. No, that was free as when I played beneath my native palm-tree's shade. O Africa, my native land, when shall I see thee meekly stand beneath the banner of my God and governed by his holy word? When shall I see the oppressor's rod plucked from his hand by gracious God? Ho, oh, when shall I, my brethren, see, enjoy the sweets of liberty? Friends of the crushed and bleeding slave, ask God to pity, God to save. For all the help of men is vain, since man for man has forged the chain. O righteous Father, thou art just, to thee I look, to thee I trust. O may thy gracious spirit bear the Afric's groan, the Afric's prayer up to thy spotless throne above, where all is joy and peace and love. For Jesus' sake, O oh, save the oppressed, and let their souls in heaven find rest. Whilst at college, some of the young gentlemen there who did not altogether like my color, played considerable many practical jokes upon me, and tried to make me some mischief with the principals. They played all sorts of tricks upon me. They would, when I was out of the way, scatter my books and papers all over the room, and pile up my books in a heap. They would also choke up my stovepipe with shaving, so that, when I attempted to make a fire, the room would become filled with smoke. But of these matters, I had only to complain in the right quarter, and all would be settled. But I did not like to be continually complaining of them, so I endured a great deal of their vexatious tricks in silence. I could not tell why they plagued me thus, excepting they did not like my color, and that they thought I was a good subject upon which to expand their frolicsome humor. After I left the college, I went to the free missions, with whom I remained a short time, and received more learning from that source. I went to school at Freetown Corner, under the direction of the missions. I lived with my teacher, working occasionally for my board, during my stay here. I had a room to myself, and being cold weather, I always needed a fire, but being no place for the stovepipe to go into a chimney, a lady suggested that I should take a pane of glass from the window, and put the pipe through the aperture, which I did, and it answered the purpose very well indeed, until a very windy day came, when the wind blowing down the pipe caused my room to be filled with smoke. How to remedy the evil I could not exactly tell, but an ingenious thought struck me. I went to the closet and procured a large flat candlestick, which I took outside and placed over the pipe, the candlestick being placed shanked downwards. This answered the purpose well enough, so far as keeping the wind out, but at dark my room was filled with the choking smoke as bad as ever. The remedy was as bad as the disease. I had not calculated upon the smoke escaping. I had imagined that the wind getting into the pipe prevented the smoke getting out, Consequently, my plan was to adopt some method to keep the wind out, which I did most effectually. The sequel is known. Thus, a man may acquire knowledge, piece by piece, and in some things become very clever, but, notwithstanding, may become entangled in his ideas with the simplest thing imaginable. Cleverer and wiser men than Mahama have done even more foolish things than this. 
after this i returned to mcgrawville for a short time when having a desire to see the manners and customs of the people living under the government of queen victoria of whom i had heard so much induced me to go to canada where i remained a short time and being so well pleased with the reception i there met with i at once determined to become a subject of her majesty for which purpose i attended at the proper office gave the oath of allegiance and procured my papers of naturalization without any difficulty i was kindly treated by all classes wherever i went and must say in my heart i never expected to receive in a nation so distant from my native home so much kindness attention and humanity i am thankful to god that i enjoy the blessings of liberty in peace and tranquillity and that i am now in a land where none dare make me afraid where every man can or may sit down under his own vine and under his own fig tree where every man acting as a man no matter what his color is regarded as a brother and where all are equally free to do and to say being thus surrounded by friends and enabled to enjoy the blessing of peaceful freedom i came to the conclusion that the time had arrived when i might with propriety commit to paper all that has been recounted in this work and whenever the day may come that a way may be opened to me of being useful in the regeneration of my own loved country i shall be ready to say i come and may god in his infinite wisdom hasten that day is the constant and fervent prayer of the subscriber whose sufferings and tortures it is to be hoped have so further opened the ears and hearts of sensibility should a call be given him to return once more to the land of his birth he will cheerfully respond and is sure friends will not be wanting to aid him in his benevolent purpose mahama gardo bakwakwa prayer of the oppressed o great jehovah god of love thou monarch of the earth and sky canst thou from thy great throne above look down with an unpitying eye see afric's sons and daughters toil day after day year after year upon this blood bemoistened soil and to their cries turn a deaf ear canst thou the white oppressor bless with verdant hills and fruitful plains regardless of the slave's distress unmindful of the black man's chains how long o lord ere thou wilt speak in thy almighty thundering voice to bid the oppressor's fetters break and ethiopia's sons rejoice how long shall slavery's iron grip and prejudice's guilty hand send forth like bloodhounds from the slip foul persecutions o'er the land how long shall puny mortals dare to violate thy just decree and force their fellow-men to wear the galling chain on land and sea hasten o lord the glorious time when everywhere beneath the skies from every land and every clime peons to liberty shall rise when the bright sun of liberty shall shine o'er each despotic land and all mankind from bondage free adore the wonders of thy hand end of section eight end of biography of mohammed jibba kwakwa by samuel moore